I'd like to start by wishing you all a happy July 4th holiday weekend. Tomorrow we'll celebrate the anniversary of the signing of the uh, Declaration of Independence by the Second Continental Congress on July 4th, 1776. Even though the signing actually happened on August 2nd. <laughs> so then we can celebrate the writing of the Declaration by Thomas Jefferson, which was really finished by, July, by June 28th. But we voted in favor of pronouncing our independence from the crown on July 2nd. As John Adams wrote to his wife Abigail, Americans will commemorate their independence with a festival every July 2nd. So for those of you who light off your fireworks early, you're actually on time. Congratulations. But the Declaration of Independence was adopted by the Congress on July 4th, 1776. Adopted by the entire Congress. And it is this act, the act of adopting the principles of declaration, that will be important as we unpack our scripture today. This morning, my message has patriotic themes. I've never given a sermon with these themes. In fact, to be honest, I'm a bit uncomfortable with preaching patriotism from the pulpit. But let me just say, just so there are no elephants parading through this room, in case ever anyone is worried that the radical student pastor will go rogue and spout negativity and degradation against our nation, I can calm your fears and say that the purpose of my message this morning at its core is meant to illuminate the principles of our great nation and connect them with the ideals of God's kingdom. We are called as Christians and citizens to support and bring to fruition the dream of our nation and God's vision for us, one that celebrates life and the pursuit of happiness with liberty and justice for all. In fact, one of America's strongest ideals is also the crux of our passage this morning. As we heard read, Jesus says, give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. Jesus believes in the separation of church and state. As a staunch Baptist, and student of Dr. James Dunn, a man who devoted his life to the ideal of this separation of church and state, I can tell you that one of the core foundations of Baptist belief especially is this separation of the power of the government from religious faith. Baptists have been fighting to maintain this ba balance since our origins in America, our foundation. When it comes to this passage, Growing up in church, I've heard powerful sermons and testimonies that encouraged us to give to God what is God's, highlighting that part of the passage. As these messages communicated, all of our gifts are greatly needed within our communities and throughout the world. And this is so very true. Our gifts go to support the church, our church, and its good work in the world, to help provide the means and care to those who need it most and help further our mission to spread the message of God's love to all who are desperate to hear a word of hope and experience acts of restoration. 
Jesus' heartfelt words of generosity and giving are so needed to bring light into a world of darkness. But there is another part of this passage, one that as a child and into adulthood I heard waved off, even combated against. It's the part of the passage where Jesus talks about Caesar and the importance of giving to him. This view said that the money we had to pay toward the government was necessary, but it wouldn't really be furthering God's kingdom. Basically, the the money we give to Caesar, according to this message, said tithes were separate from taxes and more important in that way. This message said that giving to Caesar negates a gift to God, or vice versa. But this dichotomy like most dualisms, needs to be broken down. In this passage, Luke tells us that Jesus is being tested. But even further than the Gospels of Matthew and Mark go, Luke tells us the drastic nature for which Jesus faces this text. Luke writes that the goal of the test for the spies sent by the chief priests and scribes was to hand Jesus over to the governor. This governor is Pilate, who we know later plays a large role in Jesus' conviction and sentencing. This was one of the early attempts that the chief priests and scribes made to silence Jesus' radical and rebellious message through means of the oppression of the Roman Empire. But Jesus doesn't fall for this trap. He asks them for a denarius, and they give it to him readily, even easily, Now, for context, a denarius was considered a day's wage for a day's work. So today, that would be about $120 if you make $15 an hour, or about $90 if you make Missouri's minimum wage, and that's before taxes. The spies are able to hand that over to Jesus without even blinking. So Jesus, standing in the temple, is already making a statement about financial status, when he, in later stories, he states specifically, even in the temple, some have more and far more have less. When Jesus asks about the denarius' description, he sets up the obvious opposition between Caesar and God, between the empire and God's kingdom. Give to the emperor this, give to God this. And the spies couldn't respond to him because he had answered them in the way they believed that God transcends, is above the government of man. But perhaps there's another way to view this, not as God and government opposing each other, but as two sides of the same coin. Creating a dichotomy means there is a right and there is a wrong. But this is not how Jesus describes it. He doesn't say giving to Caesar opposes giving to God, or that giving to God surpasses giving to the state. There isn't a depravity on one side and a holiness on the other. In fact, he equates one with the other. We give both to Caesar and to God. This is not an either-or, but a both-and. One does not oppose the other. Both work in conjunction with each other. It isn't tithes over taxes. Both give us financial means to help foster real change in our world. 
There is a belief today, you may have heard it, that America is divided along fault lines that are deeper than any before, more entrenched in opposition than ever before, more despairingly uh, separated than we can ever recover from. But this notion is a fallacy. It's a fallacy intended to keep us in a state of despair and hopelessness as if we can never overcome this, as if there is no solution because it is worse than ever before. Yet, many of our most fractured divisions, our bitter arguments, our attempts to silence others have been swept under the rug of history in the past, especially by the most powerful. The most obvious political example of these divisions that were deep then and are deep now is that in 1856, years before the Civil War, Preston Brooks, a U.S. representative, took a cane and beat Senator Charles Sumner almost to death on the Senate floor because the senator decried the practice of slavery in new territories, specifically Kansas. These divisions have been among us, and yet we must rise up against them. This division in the Senate was power against power, but so many more of our divisions have been power against the powerless, spreading injustice and allowing prejudice to split the people of our nation. These fractures find their roots in ignorance, and they blossom into despair. There are many examples of times when our country has brought pain against people and spread injustice in the world. And it is an unfortunate but illuminating fact that Jesus, or that our nation, just like Rome, has finds many of its injustices, like slavery, segregation, and wars with indigenous people. They have financial underpinnings. Before the war with the Lakota people, there was gold found in the Black Hills. Slavery gifted the owner free labor. Segregation meant some could get served less than others. America is one of a very, very small number of countries that put a religious statement on currency. Since July of 1955, in God we trust is on every single piece of currency we issue. The $1 bill has George Washington's face on one side and in God we trust on the other. A symbolic statement akin to Caesar's. At the very least, by this we can say that America's government is intrinsically tied to, to its finances and our religion therein. In his I Have a Dream speech, Dr. Martin Luther King put the struggle of black people in America also in financial terms. He said, when the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all would be guaranteed the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And continuing, he said, it is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note, insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But, he said, 
We refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. In the formation of our country, there has always been the dream of America, a dream that is still alive. But many times it flickers like a candle about to go out. Examples of this flickering include instances where our sense of freedom struggle. Things such as the Jim Crow laws, the separate but equal Supreme Court decision, the Stonewall riots, the Rodney King beating, Black Lives Matter, Roe versus Wade, Columbine, Sandy Hook, and surrender or starve, the position that the United States government took against the Lakota people of the Black Hills. These are atrocities made, sometimes in God's name, that we as a nation must rise up against. We are able to rise up because the bank of justice is not bankrupt. While we cannot change our nation's history, we can adopt a new identity, adopt a new resolution as a people committed to a future that rises from the past. Just as our forefathers worked through drafts of our declaration, voting in separate ways but agreeing to our principles and signing their names with hope for the future, so we can do the same. We can use the resources we have been blessed with to further God's kingdom by giving to the church and also help provide funding for governmental organizations that seek to bring freedom and justice for all. We don't have to look at it as God's money or Uncle Sam's money. What is true now is that our nation is in a unique position to make a push toward justice. We can be a people that hear the refugee crying out out of necessity for their basic needs of food, shelter, and protection. A people that give voice to those on the outside of society for nameless people in poverty that can hope, cannot hope for anything beyond that. For people whose very identity is being called into question, for people whose choices are being made for them. As Christians, we can support a nation that upholds voter rights in every state and tears down all the boundaries, especially those created with segregation in mind, to help empower people to take hold of their inalienable rights as Americans to express their views in political ways. This is a dream we can hold on to. This is our dream of America our profound dream that we are able to reach for when we use our resources in this way. We can yearn, as God does, for freedom, for justice, for everyone to have a place to call home. Jesus tells us to give to the emperor what is the emperor's, and also to give to God what is God's. For we as Americans, both our government and our higher power, seek this justice. Our most intrinsic pursuits are in liberty and in freedom. We are the land of the free, the home of those brave enough to grant us those freedoms and the people who are called to carry that out. That is our patriotic dream and our duty. In his poem printed on the front of your worship guides, Langston Hughes writes, this dream today embattled 
with its back against the wall. To save the dream for one, it must be saved for all. That is our prayer, that we combine our efforts, our resources, to bring about a new nation with an identity that encompasses all that we have dreamed of. From our history, our origins, to this moment, and into the future. May it be so.